We are in Ezekiel 29 tonight. We finished up last time talking about Tyre. Took us two weeks to get through Tyre. Egypt will probably take us two weeks to get through also. There's a bunch of prophecies against Egypt in that couple, three chapters. And one of the things that you'll notice is that they are out of time sequence. He's going to start tonight in the 10th year, in the 10th month, and so forth. And then he'll jump down to the 27th year. And then he'll jump back to the 11th. He's the one that wrote it that way. I didn't. But as you go through this, you'll be aware that the time sequencing changes. Commentary I read said that he, or perhaps an editor, thought it made more sense the way it's written in the Bible as opposed to the way it happened on the ground. So just be aware that that's going to happen and you just make note of it. There's nothing you can do about it, and I don't have a really good explanation other than what I just gave you. The other thing to understand as we go through here is what has been happening is there have been prophecies or oracles against the surrounding nations. You had one against Edom, you had one against Tyre, of course, you had one against Ammonites, and so forth. Each one of them, the prophecy is in relation to what that nation did in regard to or response to Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of Israel. And of course, you remember that there were two distinct invasions separated by a number of years. The first invasion is where they took the exiles that Ezekiel is talking to, as well as taking Daniel. And then the second invasion is after Jerusalem rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar comes down and sands the place flat. The prophecies we're reading tonight are with regard to the second invasion. So one of the things that's going to happen is that historically the king of Jerusalem made a military treaty with the pharaoh in Egypt. And that's sort of what encouraged them to think that they could get away with rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. One of the things that will happen in today's reading is that because they were not a faithful military partner, if you will. In other words, they made an alliance and then didn't follow through on it. And because of that, they, they lured Jerusalem into rebelling and then didn't show up with a wherewithal to resist the rebellion. Historically, as a result of Nebuchadnezzar's trip this time, he will go down and Egypt will become for a while a part of Babylonian Empire. If you look at maps of the Babylonian Empire, you'll find that at its greatest extent, it includes Egypt. And that's as a result of this. So there's your historical context of where we are. And as I say, the first one is in the 10th year, and it will then skip to a later time. And as I was saying to you many times, all the prophecies we're reading right now with the exception of the one that skips forward about 10 years, are all in the interval between the first and the second expeditions of Nebuchadnezzar. So we're in Ezekiel 29. 
and the dates, the tenth year and so forth, are with respect to the first exile. So in the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, my Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your stream stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. And I will cast you out into the wilderness and you and all the fish of your streams, you shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered to the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I give you as food. We talked fairly extensively last time about the idea that earthly rulers are regarded as gods. Obviously, it is entirely impossible for us to put ourselves in the minds of those people and know what they actually thought, but they are consistently referred to as gods, and when Jehovah deals with them, he deals with them as pretenders. You guys think you're gods, well, guess what? You're not. And that's going to be one of the things that's going to be said here about Pharaoh. You guys have put on all the airs and the trappings of gods, and you've called yourselves gods, and you've maybe even come to believe it yourselves. We're going to have a reality check. And that's what these prophecies are. Now, the images. Several things going on. One is the idea of this dragon being dragged out of the water with fish adhering to his scales and being thrown out into the wilderness. Anybody ever smell rotten, stinking fish? The idea here is this is as undignified as you can possibly be. This is not honorable combat where we have an honorable opponent who we have bested. And no, this guy is jerked out of the water and thrown into the wilderness like garbage. No respect whatsoever. Furthermore, the idea that he will not be buried, his body will not be tended to, is also insulting. The whole thing is intended to be very, very insulting. The dragon. In pagan mythology, and I'm mostly familiar with Norse mythology, there is in the waters a serpent that encircles the earth called the Midgard Serpent. And in other old mythologies, there is the Chaos Dragon, which was slain by God when the world was created. And speaking of which, in the Orient, dragons are also regarded as mythical, mystical creatures. I tell a story, I haven't told it in a long time, so maybe nobody's heard it yet. Kay and I spent two years in Korea my last tour in the army. And one of the things that the dear Koreans did with all the artillery shells that we expended while we were over there is they cast a lot of brass and bronze. Brass and bronze was very available. So we went out shopping for some knick-knack kinds of things and we bought a bronze basin about that big around, about that deep, you know, wide, and it's got two dragons cast in bronze 
on either side. It's just a beautiful thing. And then a candlestick, which was a dragon coiling up and the candle goes into his mouth. Absolutely beautiful things. And then once we became believers and we started to look into it, we discovered what dragons meant and we got rid of them. We threw them in the trash, not wanting to be agents of leading anybody else astray, even unwittingly. And further, we had a bunch of textiles, needlework textiles that that had dragons worked into them and so forth. And those also went the way of the buffalo. So this idea of dragons being mystical, mythical, they show up all over pagan mythology from east to west, north to south. So the idea that God is calling this pharaoh a dragon has got lots of overtones to it besides just sort of being an image. Then the third thing, fourth thing, however many things we're up to now, this idea of hooks in the jaw. If you think of a fish hook, you would be right. And one of the things that was done with a conquered people that was being taken into slavery is they literally had hooks put into their jaw with ropes tied to them, and off we go. So sort of a combination of that was one of the things that was done to conquered peoples in that time. And so when God says, you think you're a God, we're going to explain things to you. And as part of that, as I'm going to humiliate you, I'm not going to tend to your body. I'm going to throw you out so you're rot in the wilderness. And, and while I'm on that riff, one of the things that we see over and over and over again in the prophets is when God is upset with a city or a nation, one of the things he says is they're going to come through and slaughter you and the beasts of the field are going to feast on your bodies. And the deal there is you are so bad that I am not even going to afford you the dignity of a decent burial. I have so little regard for you and you have become so evil that I'm just going to have people slaughter you and you're just going to lay there where you lay and the birds and the beasts are going to come and eat on you because I don't have any regard for you whatsoever. Jezebel and Ahab, the dogs are going to lick your blood. All of that is by way of saying that you are so evil, you stink so badly, I cannot stand you, I am not going to give you any show of respect. I am simply going to have you slaughtered, and you're just meat at that point, wherever you lay. And that's the same thing that's being said here to Pharaoh. The question was, what's the deal with fish sticking to his scales? Short answer is, I don't know. I started off saying, have you ever smelled rotten fish out in the sun? And the idea is maybe a dead dragon doesn't stink badly enough for God. So we're going to plaster it with dead fish to make sure it really stinks. The comment was that perhaps it's a metaphor and the dragon is Pharaoh and the fish sticking to his scales are the people of Egypt who are going to be slaughtered in this process. That's as good as anything I've got. So after all of this, then in verse 6, then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they grasped you by the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders, and when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins shake. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I will bring a sword upon you and will cut off from you man and beast. And the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord. All the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. Remember what we talked about at the beginning is this idea of earthly rulers being regarded as gods. And we don't really know what they actually thought. But boy, the politically correct thing to do with them is worship. So they were treated as gods. They were revered as gods. And again, you can't get into anybody's mind so you don't know if there was any sincerity there. May have been. They may have regarded the king as God's earthly agent, if you will, and himself divine. But the point is, after this business of being flopped out in the wilderness and being left there to stink, what that does is it says to all the inhabitants of Egypt who have been worshiping this guy, you back the wrong horse. This guy's not a god. Look what just happened. I'm the one you should be worshiping because look what I was able to do to him. And if he had truly been a god, I wouldn't have been able to pull this off. So as you see this happen, recognize that you're worshiping the wrong deity. And by the way, that refrain comes through over and over in the Exodus. The idea of a staff of reed, most of you all know your history, the banks of the Nile are lined with bulrushes, which are reeds. And the thing about a reed is it really is stiff and strong until it isn't. What a reed is is a hollow tube. And what happens with that is it's really, really stiff until it buckles. And then it just goes instantly. There's no bending. There's no gradual failure. There's no graceful failure, which is to say it gave you lots of warning and you could see things sag and and you could get people out of the building. With a buckling failure like that, it looks really strong until it's not, and then the roof is down on your head. So the idea of Egypt being a staff of reed to Israel indicates that Israel put its weight on Egypt's promises, and they looked really good until all of a sudden, bang, they were no good. No warning. That's what a staff of reed symbolizes. So the idea here is Israel depended on you, depended on your promises, and they depended on them all the way up until Nebuchadnezzar showed up and you guys bailed. And because of that, Israel was severely injured. They were leaning on this staff, and when the staff collapsed, they went down, tore the muscles in their shoulder, all of that kind of stuff. So that's the image that's being given here. So let's pick it up at verse 8 and we'll charge on through. The land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Because you said, the Nile is mine and I made it. Therefore, behold, I am against you and against your streams. And I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation from Migdal to Syene, as far as the border of Cush. Migdal is right up in the Nile Delta, right up against the Mediterranean coast. So what it is is Egypt from bottom to top. And by the way, I said that precisely. The bottom of Egypt is 
the upper end of the Nile. We are used to thinking of north and south as being up and down. With Egypt, it's reversed. What it is, is with reference to the river. So upper Egypt is the upper end of the Nile. Lower Egypt is down on the Mediterranean. So as you're reading scripture, recognize that that's the convention with respect to Egypt. And with respect to everything else, while we're doing directions, the four directions that are translated in your Bible, north, south, east, and west, what the Hebrew says is front, left, right, and behind. So the idea is, as you're standing facing east, east is in front of you, north would be on your left hand, so left becomes north, right becomes south, and then west becomes behind you. Most of the translators do a very nice job of translating it for you, but just understand that directions in the Bible are not always intuitive. So verse 11, No foot of man shall pass through it, and no foot of beast shall pass through it. It shall be uninhabited forty years. And I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolated countries. And her city shall be a desolation forty years among cities that are laid waste. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them through the countries. As far as I know, there isn't any record of that actually happening. My commentary delicately says there's no archaeological record that this has happened. One of the things that I looked up, and I'm just throwing this out for your entertainment. I'm not saying thus saith anybody except it's interesting. It isn't at all clear that modern Egyptians are of the same genetic stock as ancient Egyptians. And especially after the Greek invasion and the Babylonian invasion. One of the things that the Babylonians did, if you remember, which is what they did with Israel, is when they conquered them, they scooped up a whole bunch of people and took them back to Babylon. So just as there was a return from Babylon after 70 years, once the Babylonian Empire collapsed, something similar may have been done with Egypt. And I've said that very carefully. This is all speculation. In fact, you can find articles on just who are or who were the Egyptians because it is not at all clear that the people that are there now are the same stock as the people who were there then. So do with that as seems good to you. I don't know what it means, but it's, it's interesting. But as I say, the commentaries I've read say, as far as they know, this never happened. But it may have been something like the Babylonian captivity was for Israel because Nebuchadnezzar is going to conquer Egypt on his second trip. And it's very possible that something like that happened then. Verse 13. For thus says the Lord God, At the end of 40 years I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered, and I will restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Patros, the land of their origin. Patros is sort of, as I understand it, symbolic of Egypt, like, all right, I'll bring you all back to Washington, where Washington represents the United States, not necessarily just the city or the state. 
that I will restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Patros, the land of their origin. And there they shall be a lowly kingdom. They shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity. When they turn to them for aid, then they will know that I am the Lord God. That actually has happened after Nebuchadnezzar, Egypt never became a major power. They were invaded by the Babylonians. Then Alexander invaded them. And you've all read the book of Daniel and the book of Maccabees. Both of those talk about the grecification, if you will, of the Mediterranean basin. When Alexander died, he had four generals. One of them got Macedonia, one of them got Greece, one of them got Syria, and one of them got Egypt. Ptolemy was the guy that got Egypt. So that dynasty ruled Egypt for several hundred years. Seleucus got what's now Syria and that area. So you have Seleucus north of Israel and Ptolemy south of Israel. And the book of Daniel has what I call the soap opera, where you have the king of the north and the king of the south going back and forth and trading wives and murdering each other and going to war and all that kind of stuff. That's the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. But the point is, it all takes place in Egypt, Syria, and Israel. Egypt is not a player. They're all ruled by Greeks at that point. Modern-day Egypt is big. They control the Suez Canal, so that makes them very important. Got lots of people, that makes them important. But they've never been the region-spanning empire that they were before. All right, now, this is one of the skips I told you about at the beginning. The prophecies here are out of temporal sequence. So the prophecy we just finished was given in the 10th year. And now we've skipped forward to the 27th year, and then we'll go back to the 11th year. Nobody's quite sure why that is. Commentary that I read says, maybe Ezekiel thought that the logic flowed better. Entirely also possible that some editor has edited it and thought it made more sense that way. I have no idea, but just be aware that they're out of sequence. So what we've done is we've jumped forward something like about 15 or 16 years. The prophecies are with respect to time as the prophecies are. This prophecy was given some 16 or 17 years later than the prophecy we just read. Then we will get the next prophecy, which goes back to the time sequence of the one we just finished. So verse 17. In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, and every shoulder was rubbed bare. Yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth, and despoil it, and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army." I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored, because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. As I'm sure you all know, 
War at that time was a profit-making enterprise. Certainly you could go to war because you just didn't like somebody, and that frequently happened, but most of the time you went to war because you expected to make money off of it. You're going to go there, you're going to conquer these folks, you're going to take their stuff, you may take their land, you're going to take slaves, all of that kind of thing. So the idea there is when you go to war, you expect to make money. Which means, by the way, since they didn't have the Federal Reserve who could write script, they had to come up with real money to pay their army. And very often their army was not entirely nationally homogeneous, which is to say you would have mercenaries that would join your army from surrounding regions, again, expecting to get paid. So when Nebuchadnezzar does his campaign and he goes against Tyre, and we talked about that last time, he doesn't actually conquer Tyre. Tyre, the island fortress, is offshore. There was a coastal city across the estuary, and that was destroyed. But the problem was Tyre was a seafaring nation, and what they did is they took all of the valuable stuff, loaded it on ships, and sent it off to their colonies. Carthage was one of their colonies. They had colonies all around the Mediterranean. So when Nebuchadnezzar finally reduced the shore city, there wasn't much there for him to steal. And furthermore, he never did reduce the island fortress. That continued to exist until the time of Alexander the Great. So Nebuchadnezzar's got a problem. He is hundreds of miles from home. He's got an army that needs to be paid, and he's got no money. This is kind of a big deal because very often when those kinds of things happened, the commander would turn out to be one of the victims of the campaign. So what he did, and he in fact did historically, and God is saying here prophetically, is he turned south and went down and took Egypt and looted Egypt. That actually happened. And Egypt then became a vassal country, if you will, to Babylon. It became part of the Babylonian Empire for a while. Till Babylon itself collapsed. But the thing that just crossed my mind, how long is Israel going to be in exile according to Jeremiah? 70 years. How long is Egypt going to be in exile according to Ezekiel? 40 years. So what I am wondering if both of those times coincide with the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. That just occurred to me. I haven't looked it up. I don't know if it's correct. I don't know how much time there was between the initial conquest of Israel and the conquest of Egypt. And if it was 30 years, then that's what we're talking about. 29-21. On that day, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Got no idea what that means. Obviously, a horn is a ruler and a powerful one. Don't know what that means. Chapter 30. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, wail, alas for the day, for the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword will come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be in Cush. When the slain fall in Egypt, and her wealth is carried away, and her foundations are torn down. Cush and Put and Lud and all Arabia and Libya and the people of the land that is in league shall fall with them by the sword. 
the day of the Lord. This may in fact refer to the end time, but given the context here, it may simply be this is the day when I'm going to act. Because what we're talking about is the looting of Egypt, which in the context of the previous chapter, since that was how Nebuchadnezzar was going to get his army paid, it is entirely possible that this is when God pulls the trigger and Egypt gets looted. It could also refer to something in the end. It could be a dual fulfillment. But as I say, given what we're talking about, which is the destruction and plundering of Egypt, especially in order to pay Nebuchadnezzar's army, that's what happens here in that little poem. Do with that as seems good to you. And, oh, by the way, all the surrounding area is going to get scooped up as part of that process. So verse 6. Thus says the Lord, those who support Egypt shall fall, and her proud might shall come down. From Migdal to Syene, they shall fall within her by the sword, declares the Lord God. And they shall be desolated in the midst of desolated countries, and their cities shall be in the midst of cities that are laid waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have set fire to Egypt, and all her helpers are broken." So Cush, Put, Lud, Arabia, and Libya are all surrounding countries of Egypt. Cush is to the south, Put is to the west, Libya is to the west, and Arabia, of course, is to the east. If you like to set this in the end times, by all means be my guest, but it sort of feels like a continuation of what we've been talking about here. Verse 9. On that day, messengers shall go out from me in ships to terrify the unsuspecting people of Cush, and anguish shall come upon them in the day of Egypt's doom, for behold, it comes. So the idea again here is Egypt falls, you're going to have survivors who are going to carry the word, and her allies are going to, to put it delicately, have a brown toga moment. Because Egypt, at that point, is the linchpin of all of this. They're the major military country in all the alliance. So when they get taken out, there's nothing to stop the destruction of these other countries. Verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to the wealth of Egypt by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. See, now we're back to Nebuchadnezzar. So that's why I say it feels like this is all of a flow as opposed to skipping out to the last days. But let us say, do what seems good to you. Verse 11. He and his people with him, the most ruthless of nations, shall be brought in to destroy the land, and they shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with slain. And I will dry up the Nile, and I will sell the land into the hand of evildoers. I will bring desolation upon the land and everything in it. By the hand of foreigners, I am the Lord, I have spoken. We're talking military invasion. Verse 13. Thus says the Lord God, I will destroy the idols and put an end to the images in Memphis. And Memphis is up in the Nile Delta. And I will put an end to the images in Memphis. There shall no longer be a prince from the land of Egypt, so I will put fear in the land of Egypt. Now, there have been several capitals, if you will, certainly major cities 
in Egypt. I don't right off the hand know if Memphis is one of them, but the idea is that there will no longer be an Egyptian prince in Memphis. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be a foreigner, somebody else. 14. I will make Patros a desolation and set fire to Zon, and I will execute judgment on Thebes. Those are all obviously Egyptian cities. And I will pour out my wrath on Pelusium, the stronghold of Egypt, and cut off the multitude of Thebes. Pelusium is up on the Mediterranean coast, major military center, because it sits right beside the major north-south invasion and trade route. It's a big deal. It would sort of be like taking out Fort Hood in Texas, a major military site, and its job there is to keep bad guys like Babylonians and Israelites and uh, Assyrians and all those kinds of people from coming down. Sort of like Megiddo in Israel, and Hazor was also a major military center. 16. I will set fire to Egypt. Pelusium shall be in great agony. Thebes shall be breached, and Memphis shall face enemies by day. All major facilities in Egypt. The young men of On and of Pi-Beseth shall fall by the sword, and the women shall go into captivity. Again, one of the big draws is slaves. Not only did you get all their stuff, and you get their land, you get to take them as slaves. The average life of a galley slave was like five years, so you needed a constant supply of slaves just to do all the stuff that you wanted done, because they wore out and died pretty quickly. Verse 18, At Tehophanes the day shall be dark, when I break there the yoke bars of Egypt, and her proud might shall come to an end in her, she shall be covered by a cloud, and her daughters shall go into captivity. The idea of covering by a cloud is doom. Dark, heavy, foreboding, not necessarily a literal cloud, it's just doom is coming down upon you. 19. Thus I will execute judgments in Egypt, then they shall know that I am the Lord. So now down to verse 20, in the 11th year and the first month on the seventh day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. So now you see we have switched back from 27th year and now we've backed up 16 years. And again, it isn't that we have backed up 16 years in the flow of the narrative. We have backed up 16 years in the sequence that God gave Ezekiel the visions. So in the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and behold, it has not been bound up, to heal it by binding it with a bandage, so that it may become strong to wield a sword. Remember the deal was, I'm going to take Egypt out, and it is never going to be a major military power again. That's what that's saying, that I'm going to break his arm and it's not going to be healed so he can wield a sword. So never again will Egypt be the major military power that it is before the Babylonian excursion. Verse 22, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and I will break his arms, both the strong arm and the one that was broken, <laughs> and I will make the sword fall from his hand. In other words, if breaking one isn't enough, I'll break them both and break the first one again. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations, disperse them throughout the countries. 
and I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, but I will break the arms of Pharaoh, and he will groan before them like a man mortally wounded. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And again, this repeated, then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am... Remember we said at the beginning of all of this, Pharaoh is claiming to be a god. And his people at least do the form of worship to him. Got no idea what they actually thought, but it would have been required to worship. You all know about Libelli, the little books in Rome. In Rome, unless you belong to an established ancient religion, you were required once or twice a year to show up at some pagan temple in the Roman Empire and offer a token offering to Caesar. And the priest there would make a note in a little book called Lobelli. And you had that with you. And if you had not made a sacrifice to Caesar, you were regarded as a rebel and the penalty was crucifixion. Jews were exempt because they were recognized as a religio licita, which means an established religion. Christians were a problem because Christians weren't actually Jews, but they wouldn't do the Caesar worship bit, hence lions in the amphitheater. So the idea that Pharaoh is held up to be a god, it would have been the case that there were state rituals that were required of the inhabitants of Egypt to worship, quote-unquote, Pharaoh. So what God is doing with this is saying to Pharaoh and all the Egyptians, you think this is a god? No, he's not. Watch. And then all of this stuff happens, and it's all so that the Egyptians will know that he is God and their Pharaoh is not. Remember in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled And he is made to eat grass like an ox and live out in the field. And at the end of that process, when his sanity is restored, what you have is the only testimony in the Bible of a pagan as to God. And he gives his testimony. He recognizes that God is God and he's the one. But the point is, Nebuchadnezzar knows who God is. No question whatsoever in his imperial mind. Because God took him out and made him eat grass for a season. So the idea that that word would get to the Egyptians is not at all far-fetched. Don't know if it actually happened, but that's a great question. I like that. I hadn't made that connection. Good for you. I hadn't made that connection before. I got no idea, but I know of several avenues by which it could be made clear that Nebuchadnezzar is acting under the aegis of God's authority. Don't know if it was, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. If one of the messages that Nebuchadnezzar got is, yeah, when you go down and take care of this, make sure you let them know who I am. Don't know that that happened. But I say it's a great question. (laughs) 